That was very kind. Uh, I appreciate that. This is my last Sunday, so uh, <clears throat> I preached a little longer than usual in the first <laughs> service. But you had a short one on, uh, what was it, Wednesday? Wednesday last, it was short. So put them together and they average out. So, okay, this morning uh, we're going to, uh, I hope, finish this uh, short study on the doctrine of election, and I think we can get through it. Uh, mostly, I think I'm probably going to talk at you and then open it up for some questions uh, that I know you have and that some that we have put off. So, uh, and I know this has got to be difficult when you're one week I'm up here and the next week Pastor Grady's up here and it's, you're lost in space there. But we have been talking about the fact that this is a comforting doctrine. And where we left off was right about the point where we asked, what about those who are lost? And uh, we're going to look at a couple of uh, passages, but before we do, let's begin with a word of prayer. O Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word to help us rightly to understand what you have caused to be recorded for our salvation and our instruction. We ask that you would bless all those who are here today with true faith and that we all find comfort in this doctrine of election that you have chosen us from eternity and brought us to Christ and keep us in Christ. All these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Oh, you're getting a little better with that too. So. <laughs> Okay, let's look at some passages. First, Hosea uh, 13.9. Hosea 13.9. When we ask about those who are lost, and at verse 9... Uh, in, in this whole chapter, we see that uh, uh, God has a relentless judgment on Israel because of their sins. And at 9, He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. So in other words, they are the ones who are resisting. It is not because God chose them to that, but they have resisted. And you, you get a a certain flavor of that, uh, maybe from the, the verse that I read in the sermon, the first uh, two verses of chapter 15 of Luke. And those, those of you who haven't been to the service yet, uh, it's on the parable, the parable of the waiting father. I didn't say that specifically, uh, but most of you know it as the, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, but it's not really about him. It's not really about the older son either. It's about the father. Uh, so I, I prefer to call it the parable of the waiting father. And uh, anyway, you, you heard in there the, the audience, the Pharisees the, and the scribes, those who are grumbling against God's mercy, that Christ has mercy on these people, and that he... Uh, 
receives them to himself, and they are against God. So therefore, they are the ones of whom Hosea is speaking here, or God is speaking through Hosea, because they are against your helper. All right, let's go to Romans 9, verse 20. And I think this one is a little more clear, and this one is one that we need to contemplate. Romans 9, 20. Uh, And in this whole section, uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, uh, Paul is dealing with the issue of the unbelieving Jews, Israel. And at verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Uh, And it goes on, he's going to go on, but uh, the first part of that, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? So in, in trying to answer, well, why hasn't God saved them, can't be answered from the Scriptures. It cannot be answered from the Scriptures. The formula of Concord speaks to that. <clears throat> Since our nature is corrupted by sin and is worthy and deserving of God's wrath and damnation, God owes us neither His Word nor His Spirit nor His grace. In fact... When He does graciously give us these, we frequently cast them from us and make ourselves unworthy of eternal life. But God permits us to behold His righteousness and well-deserved judgment over certain lands, nations, and people, so that as we compare ourselves with them and find ourselves in the same condemnation, we may learn the more diligently to recognize and praise God's pure and unmerited grace toward the vessels of mercy." Uh, And then this is is emphasized. No injustice is done to those who are punished and receive their wages of sin. In the case of others, however, excuse me, no injustice is done to those who are punished and receive their wages of sin. In the case of others, however, to whom God gives and preserves His Word, whereby He enlightens, converts, and keeps them, God commends His pure and unmerited grace and mercy. So, if your eternal election rests on Christ and what He has done, then it is absolutely vital that you remain connected to Him. And where are you connected? I think um, most all of you know we've gone over that before. In word and sacrament, the means of grace. That's where you're connected. So, it is incumbent upon you to use To use that and faithful attendance at divine service then is so vital because that's where the gifts of God are dispensed. You know, I think I said this perhaps before. I kind of forget with these weeks off that we don't go to church. We go to the divine service. And why? Because it is God serving us. He distributes the gifts of His grace, forgiveness of sins, life, 
and salvation are given us through these words, as Luther says, especially of the sacrament. So this is where we receive this. This is where God nourishes us. And one of the images that we have is that uh, we are pilgrims on earth. The Scripture speaks of that in the New Testament, that we are pilgrims, which means this is not our true home. Uh, can somebody think of a hymn that expresses this? How many of you remember the hymn, I'm but a stranger here, heaven is my home? And that's based upon what Paul writes to the Philippians. Our citizenship is in heaven. That is our true country. So we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth, the Scripture says. So on the pilgrim way, we need to be fed. And if you wanted to take the Old Testament, where is the most obvious example of that? Yes, you have to speak up. I don't always know where it's coming from. The manna. God fed His people with manna from heaven. And interestingly, I, I like that word actually. Do any of you know what that word means? Manna? It's, it's yeah, the children, uh, the, the children of Israel, the people of Israel come out and they look at it and they say, what is it? That's an exact translation of manna, mana in the Hebrew. What is it? <clears throat> so so you, you, you men, when your wife cooks dinner, you can say, ah, manna. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> and she can say, it's manna from heaven. <laughs> so this is, this is the connection that God feeds them. And, and in that sense, it was physically... And we are using this now spiritually. God feeds us spiritually in the divine service. This is where it happens. It doesn't happen out at the lake, as beautiful as it might be at the lake, or any other place where you go out to commune with nature. You really should be communing with the Creator. Uh, but uh, it happens in the divine service because that's where God's people gather together. <clears throat> we gather together to receive the gifts. And the writer to Hebrews says that we are not to, to despise this gathering together as the manner of some is. So there are those who don't. And they do it to their detriment because they become disconnected with God because they are not there to receive the nourishment that He provides in word and sacrament. Okay. Um, so that's that, Let's leave that point. That's clear enough. Let's go on to the antitheses. 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 False doctrine concerning this article. All right, this is what the confessions say, the uh, formula of Concord. Accordingly, we believe and maintain that if anybody teaches the doctrine of the gracious election of God to eternal life in such a way that disconsolate Christians can find no comfort in this doctrine but are driven to doubt and despair, or in such a way that the impenitent are strengthened in their self-will, he is not teaching the doctrine according to the word and will of God, but in accord with his reason and under the direction of the devil. Since everything in Scripture, as St. Paul testifies, was written for our instruction 
that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Therefore, we reject the following errors. Number one, the doctrine that God does not want all men to come to repentance and to believe the gospel. So that's first. First, God wants all to come to repentance and to believe the gospel. That is His will. Period. Number two, this is also rejected. Furthermore, the doctrine that God is not serious about wanting all men to come to Him when He calls us to Him. Number three, furthermore, that God does not want everybody to be saved, but that merely by an arbitrary counsel, purpose, and will, without regard for their sin, God has predestined certain people to damnation so that they cannot be saved. That means that it is impossible for them to be saved. So, again, this is laying this at the feet of God. And we are saying that is false doctrine. Number four, likewise, that it is not only the mercy of God and the most holy merit of Christ, but that there is also within us a cause of God's election on account of which He has elected us to eternal life. We're going to get to this in just a few minutes, but keep that one. These are all blasphemous and terrible errors, for they rob Christians of all the comfort that they have in the Holy Gospel and in the use of the Holy Sacraments. Hence, they should not be tolerated in God's church. That's a very strong statement. Not to be tolerated. This is a brief and simple explanation of the various articles which for a time the theologians of the Augsburg Confession have been discussing and teaching in mutually contradictory terms. From it, under the guidance of the Word of God and the plain catechism, every simple Christian can understand what is right and what is wrong, since we have not only set forth the pure doctrine, but have also exposed the contrary errors. In this way, the offensive controversies that have developed receive a basic settlement. May the Almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ grant us the grace of His Holy Spirit that we may all be of one heart in Him and constantly abide in this Christian and God-pleasing concord. Amen. Now, let's get to Calvin, because this is where it really goes off of the rails. Calvin speaks of a double predestination or a double election. Uh, I, I think it's probably Calvin more than the Lutherans who use the term predestination. Our preferred term is the election of grace, which is much more evangelical and gospel than predestination. Uh, It's called uh, sometimes uh, Calvin's doctrine absolute predestination. This means that God ordains some to salvation and others to damnation. And here's a quote from the Westminster Confession, uh, the confessional writings of the Calvinist church. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. And there are Bible passages cited there, but uh, we don't have time to do all those. Um, Notice here, there are those who are predestined to everlasting life, and it is, uh, here's the... The key phrase, 
for the manifestation of His glory. Now you apply that to the second part of that. For the manifestation of God's glory, some are predestined to damnation. Now if that isn't blasphemy, I don't know what is. Thus God is glorified in their damnation. How? how I'm sorry. Somebody say something? No? Okay. It must be noted that Calvin does not view the cross as the glory of God, but only God's righteous decrees, which include the selection to damnation. Uh, it's really Calvin who, who, uh, who is the... I say the spiritual father of the United States. And we know that um, much, much of the early history of, of our nation was uh, under the influence of Calvin. So that uh, God's glory is in commandments. That's why I think there's, there's always this... Uh, push to put the Ten Commandments in, in the marketplace or in government places. And we say, this is really the glory of God, the Ten Commandments. The glory of God is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you will always have then in Calvinist churches, you will never have a corpus on the cross. Did you ever stop to think about that? You know, people say, oh, Roman Catholics have the corpus on the cross. Yeah, and they, that may be the only gospel some of those people ever see. And I mean that very sincerely, but they get it. They say, Jesus on the cross, Jesus died for me. And Luther uh, always said, you know, the cross should be shown to a dying person. The crucifix shown to the dying person. But somewhere along the line, even we in the Missouri Synod came off of the rails with this and we had no... We had no uh, crucifixes in many of our churches. We had the empty cross. They say, well, why is it empty? They say, well, he rose from the dead. Well, then why do we have a cross at all? Then you just have an open tomb. But the cross should always have the corpus on it to teach the gospel. You say, this is the gospel. Christ crucified for me. That's what Paul says. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So let's leave him on the cross for our teaching. But he is risen. That's true. But anyway, for Calvin, and, and they, they, would never, they would not in strict Calvinist theology ever have a crucifix. Oh, wow. <laughs> You've been reading. Uh, I'm going to have to postpone that one. I don't, I don't know that we're going to have time to get into the, the finer things of this. It's supposed to be, but we're going to see there was a reaction to Calvin. I want to get to that, too. So if, if we have time, we'll try to go back to that. But let's, let's move on. I have a few pages here yet to do, so, and I promised I would finish. All right, uh, we said this uh, Calvin, in, in the Westminster Confession, that 
It is for the manifestation of his glory that God is glorified in people being damned. All right. Um, The big problem for Calvinism is that its teaching on this doctrine leads either to total despair, since one can never really know if he is among the elect, or it leads to Pharisaism and carnal security, believing that no matter what one does, one is saved. Now, here's another main point. In Calvin's theology, Christ did not die for all. And I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 5.15. 2 Corinthians 5.15. And I'm going to start at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You could just pull those words out of there. And he died for all. Calvinism says that Christ did not die for all, but only for the elect. Which then you see, there's, there's no comfort there. Because if you say, well, I'm not sure whether I'm among the elect or not, isn't anything that any of them can determine other than the strict Calvinists believe that um, if you prospered in this life, that was a sign that God liked you, and therefore you were elect. So this is where, I think I said this before, this is where you get the Protestant work ethic. It doesn't come from Luther, it comes from Calvin. The harder you work, the more sure you are of your salvation. Chuck. <clears throat> Yeah, we. <clears throat> he was uh, mentioning the uh, the parable from this morning, the prodigal son. Yeah, we would conclude. I guess he was he was uh, predestined to damnation because look what happened to him. But then there's the and and um, two weeks ago in the sermon I mentioned about uh, the most unlikely people who are saved at the end. You say, well, by all evidence that you see, they are among the lost or they are among the damned. And that's why we can't determine who, in that case, who is damned because we don't know. We certainly would have put Saul of Tarsus at the top of that list, wouldn't we? I mean, if anybody was going to be damned, it certainly would have been him because he persecuted the church of God. Uh, so, one does not know. So, some of these notorious sinners and murderers, and they repent at the end, the thief on the cross. 
before, before he repents, uh, he is uh, railing against Jesus. He is blaspheming him, but uh, our Lord saved him. And the most glorious promise of all, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, we say, who would have thunk it? So uh, Calvinism has a real problem in, in doing this to say, well, they're judging from outward appearances. But the scriptures are very clear, and that's not the only passage by any means, but Christ died for all. We call this objective justification. Christ died for the sins of the whole world, yet not all believe. But that doesn't mean that he didn't die for them. See, the Calvinist says, well, no, he didn't die for those people then. He died only for the elect. So that, that these are direct contradictions. Um, Well, you still need his death to pay for their sins. Yeah. Um, summary of uh, Calvin's, Calvin's doctrine. Uh, summarized by, maybe some of you have heard this. You probably have TULIP. You know the flower, T-U-L-I-P. Each one of those, it's an acronym. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. There we are. There's a limited atonement. <clears throat> I, irresistible grace. In other words, if you are chosen, you cannot resist. And we know that that isn't true because we see it in the New Testament. Uh, Paul, at the end, of <clears throat> the end of one of his letters, says, uh, Demas has forsaken us, having loved this present age. So here was one. There's Judas as well. And then P, perseverance in grace. So this is a, this is a very harsh doctrine. And uh, it certainly had a reaction. And the reaction to Calvin's teaching is Arminianism. How many of you have heard that term, Arminianism? Okay, good. I'm glad Pastor Feeney's teaching you all these good things. This refers to the teachings of Jacob Arminius, 1560 to 1609, a Dutch clergyman who reacted to Calvinism's harsh teaching on this doctrine. Um, a modified Arminianism arose in England under John Wesley. And you know, Wesley is associated with which denomination? Methodism. Methodist, Methodism. And this reflects the teaching of Methodism to this day. Uh, but the main point of Methodism is Christian perfection. So why, why it, when they had this club at the university, Wesley and his friends, they called it the Holy Club. In other words, you, you assured your salvation by being holy, by doing only good things, right things. So you see in there the word method. Here is a how-to. A how-to achieve holiness. 
So in other words, man is, is really, in essence, making himself holy by what he's doing. Even though he has the assistance of God, he's making himself holy. He is, he is, uh, he is becoming more and more perfect. So, you know, Methodists, strict Methodists, today it's not true because they have succumbed to... Mm, to the historical critical method in interpreting the scriptures and much of their doctrine has just gone away. They, maybe they don't believe a lot of things, but um, a Christian can be defined by what he doesn't do. Now, do any of you have friends, family, maybe you were once a Methodist about the things that Methodists don't do? They don't drink, they don't dance, they don't play cards, they, you know, all the things that Lutherans like to do. <laughs> In other words, being a Christian is defined as abstaining from certain things. So there, there is a, I guess, um, a true story of someone who said, now I want to tell you, I'm going to ask you, this Methodist, whether, whether uh, Elmer has been saved. Elmer doesn't drink. He doesn't dance. He doesn't curse. He doesn't carouse around. Well, most assuredly, yes. Well, now I have to tell you, Elmer is my dog. <laughs> I say that. You got him. Uh, so in other words, that it, Methodism then uh, goes to that. But we want to come to the positions that can be summarized in five points for them on this particular question of predestination. God from all eternity predestined to eternal life those whom he foresaw that they would remain steadfast in the faith to their end. So in other words, God foresaw that you would remain faithful, so it's kind of a, kind of a back, backwards guarantee. Okay, he saw that you would be faithful, so then he predestined you. But it was based upon what you do. The second point, Christ died for all mankind, not only for the elect. Okay, not a problem with that. Three, man cooperates in his conversion by free will. Uh, and this is, where, this is where this comes off of the rails, because uh, man does not have a free will in spiritual matters. And if any of you want to read the definitive work on that, it is Luther's Bondage of the Will. Have you read it? How many of you have read Luther's Bondage of the Will? Oh, we have at least two of you have. It's, I, I will have to tell you, it's tough sledding, if you read it. It's tough sledding, but... Um, so, in other words, man cooperates, so man has some credit for getting himself saved. And I remember, oh, and some years back, we, uh, we had a man who was a, a staunch Methodist, married a lady from our church, and, uh, and we, we would go around and around, and he, he was saying, well, you Lutherans say that you don't have to believe in order to be saved. I said, no, no, I don't know where you're finding that. He says, well, you have to do something. So he was equating faith 
as a work of man, that faith is the work of the individual. Faith is not. Faith is a gift of God. It is, as Luther says, it's the hand that receives the gift. And when you receive a gift, you don't take credit and say, well, I stuck out my hand, therefore I have, you know, I have something in this. No, if it is a gift, faith is just pure reception. And that, too, is a gift of God, given in holy baptism. So anyway, Arminianism says that man cooperates. Uh, number four, man may resist divine grace. And five, man may fall from divine grace. So, we see some similarities as well as some differences. Arminius' cause of eternal life is God's foreknowledge, not his grace. His foreknowledge, not his grace. So, man may also resist divine grace, and he solves the difficulty of double predestination by removing God as the cause of man's damnation. But in so doing, he makes man the cause of his own salvation by saying that man cooperates in his conversion by free will. So, it's, it's kind of a sleight of hand, uh, you know. So, there's the difficulty with that. Those who follow Luther deny that man has a free will in spiritual matters. Just a few references, I think, will be enough. The pure teaching concerning this article on the basis of God's Word. One, it is our teaching, faith, and confession that in spiritual matters, man's understanding and reason are blind, that he understands nothing by his own powers, as it is written in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them when he is examined concerning spiritual things. Two, likewise, we believe, teach, and confess that man's unregenerated will is not only turned away from God, but has also become an enemy of God, so that his desires, so that he desires and wills only that which is evil and opposed to God, as it is written. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's all the way back in the Old Testament. Anybody know in connection with the flood? Likewise, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. As little as a corpse can quicken itself to bodily earthly life, so little can man who through sin is spiritually dead, raise himself to spiritual life as it is written. When we were dead through our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Therefore, we are not of ourselves sufficient to claim anything is coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God. So in other words, salvation, conversion is 100% the work of God. 0% your input. That ought to make you feel good, because if it depended on you, I, I dare say none of us would, would be on the list. Okay, a little more. God the Holy Spirit, however, does not affect conversion without means. Back to this, he employs to this end the preaching and the hearing of God's word 
as it is written that the gospel is a power of God for salvation. That's Romans chapter 1. Likewise, that faith comes from the hearing of God's word. Let's look at this passage. Romans 10. And I'm going to start at verse 14. And remember, this is the section where Paul is dealing with the question as to why the Jews haven't believed. All right? If you really want to delve into that, read chapters 9 through 11. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Okay, thus far that. Um, It is God's will that men should hear His Word and not stop their ears. Any of you recall uh, in in the book of Acts, Paul is preaching and the people don't want to hear it, so they all start shouting and throwing dust in the air. You know, if you have children, you've you've witnessed this with your children. I can't hear you, I can't hear you. I don't want to hear it. All right, so that's what that's what uh, there's what what Paul encountered too. Uh, the Holy Spirit is present with His Word and opens hearts so that, like Lydia in Acts sixteen fourteen, they heed it and thus are converted solely through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. For man's conversion is the Spirit's work alone. Without His grace, our will and effort, our planting, sowing, and watering are in vain unless he gives the growth. Christ also states, apart from me you can do nothing. In these few words he denies all power to free will and ascribes everything to the grace of God so that no one might boast in the presence of God. One of my favorite Luther quotes. Luther says, while Philip and I, that's Philip Melanchthon, and their properties Many of you have been on the tours that Pastor Finney's led to Germany, and you've been to Wittenberg, and you know that Luther's domicile, the, the backyards met together with Melanchthon's backyard. So Luther says, while Philip and I drink our glass of Wittenberg beer, the gospel runs its course. So I say, relax and have a beer. Let God the Holy Spirit do the work. Because he is the one that does the work. But then you have, you know, the people who come to your door 
you know, whoever, whoever they might be, to kind of force a conversion, you know, get, engage you in conversation that you're probably going to lose because they have uh, memorized their, their, their piece or their script so well. It's like dealing with somebody, a telemarketer. You say, no, I don't want to buy it. And they go to the next point on the script, and you keep saying, no, 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 but they go on to the next part on the script, and you say, goodbye. You have to hang up because they have it so well memorized that uh, there are people who will be taken in by that and just, well, you know. But uh, the Holy Spirit does His work without our input. That doesn't mean that we aren't involved because obviously God uses human beings, the spoken word, uh, to convert people. I once had a... uh, a Baptist person asked me, well, she said, you've been in the ministry a long time. I bet you've converted lots of people. And I said, I haven't converted a one. (laughs) (laughs) But this is, you know, they call it soul winning, as though we, we do it, and we don't do it. It is all the work of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, it may be through, through my speaking, but I can't, I can't, make you believe it isn't me who's going to convince you all that we can do is preach the word and sometimes it doesn't work and you know Paul says in that one place he says what do you do you or Jesus says this when he sends the the 12 out on the preaching tour they didn't receive it says shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town but this will be in testimony against them that they rejected the gospel. All right, almost done, and then we have, we have some time to talk. From the negative theses, these points. We also reject the error of the crass Pelagians who taught that by his own powers, without the grace of the Holy Spirit, man can convert himself to God, believe the gospel wholeheartedly, Obey God's law and thus merit forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Notice that. Merit forgiveness of sins. Uh, Number, well, it was number three. I didn't put in number one. I don't know why. We also reject the error of the semi-Pelagians. These are the halfway Pelagians. They didn't go all the way, but halfway. Who teach that man, by virtue of his own powers, could make a beginning of his conversion, but could not complete it without the grace of the Holy Spirit. Which church teaches that? Which denomination teaches that? I, I can't hear you. Roman Catholics, yes. That's Roman Catholic theology. Yes. In other words, you, you, need, you need a jump start. I got jumper cables here. We'll give you a jump start. Now you can uh, carry on on your own. I'm sorry. What's the difference between Probably not a lot. It's pretty much the same thing, but you see it comes in different, different shapes and sizes. But uh, this, that one that I just read describes Roman Catholicism pretty well. So that you, uh, in the Roman church, uh, you, you need to 
you would need to go to confession and you had to confess all of your sins. The sins that you didn't confess didn't get forgiven, so you had this enumeration of sins. And, and Luther did not get rid of private confession, but he did get rid of the whole matter of you have to confess all of them because he says, who would know? And he, from his own experience, he, he certainly knew how that was because he used to keep his father confessor busy for hours <laughs> to the point where he finally said, Brother Martin, you have too much to confess. <laughs> he got tired of listening. So they, they say, all right, you have to confess those, and then you are given penance, which is penalty for those sins that you have done. And every, I think everybody probably knows what most of those penances were. You know, you need to say 10 Our Fathers and 20 Hail Marys or something like that, and then, okay, I'm done. I've just checked it off the list, and now it's whether or not you believed anything. It has had nothing to do with faith. It's just you had to do this. So you, you just need some help to get there. All right, so that's the semi-Pelagians, which is probably very much like Arminianism. Uh, all right, this statement at the end of this section. Prior to man's conversion, there are only two efficient causes, namely the Holy Spirit and the Word of God as the Spirit's instrument whereby he affects conversion. Man should hear this word, though he cannot give it credence and accept it by his own powers, but solely by the grace and operation of God the Holy Spirit. Final paragraph. Final word from the formula of Concord. <clears throat> Moreover, when people are taught to seek their eternal election in Christ and in his holy gospel as the book of life, this doctrine never occasions either despondency or a riotous and dissolute life. See, there are those who accused the Lutherans, if, you are, uh, if God has elected you, well, then you can go out and do whatever you like. Because, hey, I got a ticket to ride. You know, it's <laughs> guaranteed ticket. Yeah, you have those guaranteed tickets on a plane. Yeah, <laughs> but I have a ticket. I paid for it. Uh, <clears throat> this does not exclude any repentant sinner, but invites and calls all poor, burdened, and heavy-laden sinners to repentance, to acknowledge their sins, and to faith in Christ, and, the prom and promises them the Holy Spirit to cleanse and renew them. This doctrine gives sorrowing and tempted people the permanently abiding comfort of knowing that their salvation does not rest in their own hands. If this were the case, they would lose it more readily than, did, than Adam and Eve did in paradise. Wow. Yes, would be losing it every moment and hour. <clears throat> <clears throat> Their salvation rests in the gracious election of God, which He has revealed to us in Christ, out of whose hand no one can pluck us. Um, I want to uh, read John 10, 28. Truly one of the golden verses in Scripture. <clears throat> and I'm going to start <clears throat> a little bit before that verse. It was verse 28. 
where Jesus is saying that he and the Father are one and the Jews <clears throat> were asking, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Notice the next verse. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Wow. Here is the most precious gospel of all. And they have stopped their ears. They do not want to hear it. So that is uh, a very precious verse. <clears throat> no one can snatch us or pluck us out of his hand. You are safe in the hands of Jesus. Hands of, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Hence, if anyone so sets forth this teaching concerning God's gracious election, that sorrowing Christians can find no comfort in it, but are driven to despair, or when impenitent sinners are strengthened in their malice, as we saw with the Jews, then it is clearly evident that this teaching is not being set forth according to the word and will of God, but according to reason and the suggestion of the wicked devil. So it is to God that all glory must be given for our salvation, and not because of anything that we do or any works that we do. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, for Christ's sake alone. All of those great solas that we have, you know, put them up there on Reformation Sunday. Uh, but that way there is comfort. You have the comfort that God has chosen you and He will keep you. Even if the gates of hell, they do not prevail against it. And all this happens within the context of the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. So you are here for a reason. You are here to be fed, to be nourished, and we have that in a, a great number of our uh, communion hymns. Lord, may thy body and thy blood be for my soul the highest good. Uh, we talk about heavenly food. We're talking about the sacrament. This heavenly food that feeds us and nourishes us, it's another way of looking at it is, is eating. You have to eat to live. If you don't eat, you will eventually die. You'll starve. You'll get very weak and sick. And, and the communion hymns have that too. Those, you know, those who do not partake of the supper regularly uh, get weak. As a matter of fact, um, when Paul talks about who therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord, let a person examine himself there and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. 
And some people say, well, does that mean that they died physically? Well, it means that they died spiritually, certainly, and maybe physically too. Uh, a curious thing, maybe, maybe not so curious, but when you... <clears throat> When all have communed and the blessing is spoken, the true body and true blood of our Lord Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you, body and soul, unto life everlasting. Go in peace, and you all say, Amen. This is true, I believe it. Body and soul. So this food is for your body and your soul. Uh, maybe you don't think of it that way, but it is. So, you know, there are times, pay close attention to the words in the liturgy. They're not, they're not throwaway words. Uh, there, there is gold in them, there are hills. <laughs> okay, I'm done, and I didn't leave you but three minutes. Sorry about that. Okay. I hope this is something we can do quickly. Oh, well, not yet. <clears throat> no, they are, they say they are de de descended from him, although Ishmael is really an Egyptian. And uh, I don't think the Egyptians, I may have to be corrected, I don't think they call themselves Arabs. I do not believe that they are Arabs. No, Islam comes from, from Muhammad, who was a, a Bedouin, uh, an Arab. Call me Ishmael. From which great book does that come? Bobby Dick. Yeah. <laughs> there, by the way, yeah, the great American novel. And there are all sorts of scriptural references in there, spiritual things in that book. If, you know, when I had American Lit in undergrad, that was one of the things we read. And picking out the, the, the things that have a connection to the Christian faith and Christian practice. But Ishmael, call me Ishmael, means I'm not the real son. I'm just the half-son or whatever. And, uh, but they're in there where they, they build the things and Queequeg and, and the pulpit and all these things are, it's a fascinating thing. So if you haven't ever read it, I'm not saying it's the most exciting thing you've ever read, but there, there's, there's a lot of stuff in there. All right. Well, I think we need to stop. We're at time and... Uh, those of you who are coming to the divine service need to get over there and we need to get vested. So let's close with the blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Good. <laughs> you say that real loudly when Pastor Feeney comes back. He'll say, I can, I can tell Meyer's been here. <laughs>